You're listening to Screeners and Dailies, part of the Real Change Movie Podcast. Justice League has come out, Thor's in his third week, Wonder overperforms, and then we're going to be talking about, of course, the Dark Universe implosion. Screeners and dailies this week, I'm William, he's Charlie. Let's talk about where we're at. It is Sunday here, it is November 19th as we're recording. The numbers I'm going to be pulling from are kind of coming from, I think, last night as they were pulled in from the West Coast, I believe. But as it stands, the heavily hyped, as they're calling it, 10 years in the making, Justice League comes in at it's looking like it's going to end its weekend at 96 million which is well well short of its pro, uh, projections that it, I think the the studio projections had this one at around I think it's upward it's upward taken would be like around 120 million so it falls well short of that and I don't think it's coincidence either then that guess where 20 million went to Thor in week 3 which is now at, at three weeks, it's around $245 million. So, Charlie, is that really any surprise? I don't think it is, but what do you think? I think those are great numbers for Justice League. I wouldn't have thought it would have made that much. I mean, they were projecting over $100 million for Justice League. Yeah, 120 With all 120. the negative reactions that that movie's getting, with all the bad press that Ben Affleck's in the middle of right now, that's a, that's really good. Now Wonder Woman, like that, did really well, right? Wasn't that like two hundred million or some ridiculous number for its opening weekend? I uh, have something like that. I mean, then again, it is summer. Like that is that that right? But what about Batman versus Superman? Batman versus Superman took in a lot more than this. Made a lot. Oh well. I mean, I think people are, are kind of soured on these movies a little bit for you know. I think people are soured on this on DC. Have a different reason. You know, I mean, I, they weren't sour on Thor. They came in droves to see Thor. Oh no, I'm talking about I'm talking about DC movies. Yeah. For some reason, every Marvel movie can get a pass on this stuff, but uh, just DC movies in general, people just seem to not want to be accepting of it, and they have their reasons. <clears throat> well, it feels like they try to do these quick fixes. And they're not going to work. I mean, granted, look, you can't hold the, Z- the Zack Snyder tragedy against it. You know, that's it's incredibly, terribly unfortunate what happened. So, you know, obviously, like, then it became, well, Joss Whedon's going to save it. Well, Joss Whedon can't reshoot, can't reshoot the entire movie. Can't do it. You know, otherwise, this movie would cost twice as much. And His even then... ability mm-hmm. goes somewhat against whatever the, these DC movies have been since Man of Steel. So I, I can't wait to see how that marriage works. You know, where it's this dark, grim, kind of gritty, just kind of bland movie. And then Joss Whedon throwing in some of his humor, which yeah, yeah. works for something like The Avengers. But with, with Batman characters, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I think the troubling thing, though, about $96 million is you have to expect that it's going to lose at least probably 50% of that business. If not, if it's not 50, it'll be still probably in the range of, what, 40% coming into this next weekend. So that that's the thing that can be a little bit alarming, at least on the domestic well, front. Internationally, well, it's also, doing okay. It also depends on what the word of mouth is. Uh, it's it's another one of those movies where the critics are eating it alive, but the fans actually seem to like it. You know, the, the audience scores are pretty high. It's gotten pretty good on IMDb right now. I've talked to a few people who've seen it, and they said they really liked it. So I I, I, I don't know. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, th- I think I, I think these holiday weekends are always kind of interesting. I think Rogue One was definitely interesting last year when it came out just before Christmas, and then that holiday just it it went through the roof uh, due to the holiday. I I don't suspect that Justice League will improve significantly upon its audience. It, there still could be people holding out. I think another thing, and I was going to bring it up, the Punisher probably had something to do with it too being derailed slightly just because it's the same core audience. And there are probably a, a number of people who stayed home over the weekend to be able to watch that because it had come out on Netflix last Friday. So, you know, I mean, we had talked about it last week. There were factors. There were a lot of easiest, <laughs> easy outs this movie could have used as excuses why it didn't work. I think, though, what is telling, though, is where is it going to go from here? We're going to be talking about later the Dark Universe. It had a similar, actually it had a worse 
uh, movie that just completely died up, upon uh, upon coming out that has essentially decimated its entire plans for its universe. So I think that'll be interesting. I think Thor coming off that twenty million. I mean, that's that that's uh, it's still holding pretty well. I'll be interested how it does over the holiday weekend. Like I said, it's now at 245. It's doing just fine. The real surprise over the weekend was the uh, the movie Wonder, which came in, I think, with 28 million. I mean, a really strong 28 million. Wow. It way, way over... It overachieved, I think, where it was coming in. I believe that was... If that was in the... That was probably in the teens is where that was projected. And I, Fandango, I think, was the one who had kind of called that this was going to over... Over, um, it was it was going to overachieve because there were a lot of strong uh, school sales. A lot of schools were buying tickets and droves to bring their classes to see it. And it's I don't see I, I couldn't blame them. The message of the movie, especially nowadays, is extremely positive. Uh, I, um, I I know it's uh, it's essentially a remake of Mask. I mean, it is and it's not a movie. We it's, it's it's something it's not something incredibly new or fresh. But nowadays, it's it feels like it's a it's a good thing to come out, especially for kids. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, and and I'll be honest, it's great to see a movie with Julia Roberts in it. Get make get those kind of numbers. Owen Wilson pulls yeah, these kind of movies out every once in a while, like the Marley and Me thing, where it's like, all right, I got to be endearing. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So you know, good for them. I'm, I'm really happy for Julia. You know, she's always she's always been one of those actresses that I liked, and once she won that Oscar. Uh, for Aaron Brockovich, her career has just not been the same. Like, no, at least not like it was when we were kids in the '90s, where she was the biggest movie star in the world. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm happy for it, and, and 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 the movie does look good, and, and like you said, that message is important, and it's, it's, that is nice that that they're taking to schools to see that. God, I, mean, I remember when they took my school to see The Phantom. Thanks a lot. Uh, so. I think know, ours. They took us to see Fly Away Home, and we all wanted to sneak into sleepers. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, the uh, the all star cast movie, De Niro and Jason Patrick. Oh yeah. yeah, I like Sleepers. Yeah, I Sleepers would fit in nicely to a topic we're going to examine here in a bit, a hundred percent, because it has the makings of of Oscar bait all over it. Oh, but um, one thing I briefly I wanted to touch on because I did I watched episode one of it. I did watch one episode of The Punisher. What was one. it? I mean, it's. It's exactly what the Punisher, you know, for the most part, we imagine the Punisher to be. It's very violent. It is very much this, it is a, it is a strong, strong revenge story. I mean, this is, see, I've, I have not watched any of the Marvel movies or Marvel things on Netflix. I haven't watched any of the shows. I've watched none of them. So, I, but I do know the Punisher was introduced in Daredevil. And so yep. Daredevil kind of covers the central Punisher run of him getting revenge on the people that killed his family. So... That's what, um, this picks up like six months after he's knocked off the last guy in that. And it's him kind of struggling to, you know, find a purpose. And there's a lot of PTSD that you see him going through and him struggling still with the death of his family. And, you know, the season kind of, you can see pretty much by the end of that episode where it's headed by, you know, him, he's, there, there's a, a guy who's down on his luck who gets in on a, on a bad criminal job and Frank has to finally intervene against his better wishes. And, you know, it, it's going to set the, it's going to set this thing in motion, but I will tell you, and I'm not speaking as some bleeding heart liberal, even though I am very liberal, the, it, it, it felt a little weird watching it. And I, and I, I'll say that I don't, the Punisher can't help what it is. It, I mean, it, it is a very violent story. Are you talking about that death wish argument that's no. at the internet? No. When that trailer came out? No. Well, no. De- death. No. No. Well, we can get. We'll get into death wish down the road. I'll be interested how that plays once it releases. What I was thinking about with Punisher though was it can't help what happened in Vegas. Okay, the Vegas thing change changes a lot of things when it comes to you know action, violence, things of that nature. But the Punisher at its core is a gun story. Like it's all about a guy who knows how to. You use a variety of weapons, most of which are guns, to to take out his enemies. And so, it's you know the pun. It, even if it had, if even if they had delayed it a year, I don't think it would help. I mean, in the very first episode, you see a guy like you see him with a sniper rifle just destroy a guy from seemingly miles away, and and uh, it's it's a little weird watching. 
I'm just going to say, I'm, it's just a little weird. I'm not going to say, like, I'll never watch Lethal Weapon or I'll never watch movies like that again. But it's something I, I don't think you can help think about when you see stuff like this now is that, especially something like The Punisher, which I'm sure prides itself on being gritty, realistic in some instances. You know what I mean? Like with the way it, it portrays its violence. It's, I'm just saying, it's just a little weird to, to watch something like that now. I'll finish it. Because I want to. I enjoy that character. I always have. So I kind of wrestle with that. But it's, uh, especially coming off that, what happened in Vegas, it's, uh, I don't know, it's definitely different. It feels different to, to watch it, you know? Well, that's the way, yeah, I get that. It's the way I feel with that opening five-minute sequence in Jack Reacher. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. That's a very creepy, like, it's just the fact that movie's even PG thirteen. I think is is a crime because that opening sequence is terrifying. I think, but yeah, I know I know where you're coming from. Yeah, it it, it was interesting. Like I said, I'm going to finish it. I do. I am. I'm not. I am not going to sit here and be like, you know what? It's inappropriate for this kind of thing to come out. Hey, man, that's your own personal opinion. If you feel that way, I I I can't fault you for that. But um, you know, I I still. Still one of those characters, man, I always was like, man, he's just, at his heart, like, the, his reasoning why he has to do what he does, I always thought was interesting. It's going to be interesting here because now he's beyond that arc, so I'll be interested how it plays. But uh, to move it along, like, we had mentioned it with Sleepers, and this is something you and I had talked about since the last time we had done a Screeners and Dailies. We had talked about, you know, man, there's so many Oscar bait movies, and that I put that in quotes, Oscar bait. I think all of us to a degree know what Oscar bait means it is a movie that is put out there and a hundred percent of this goes to the marketing there it has nothing to do with the filmmakers really or the actors even though sometimes when they're promoting the movie they can spin it a certain way but it's the way it's marketed in terms of posters it's the way it's marketed in terms of trailers these movies are pushed with this notion of being these uh, you know award season candidates and then sometimes they come out and they are not not by any means do they deliver. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do, I'm going to do five. Charlie's going to do five. We're just going to kind of go back and forth here with a few of what we consider, you know, our, our Oscar bait five, which one would you want to throw out first? For me? Yeah. Jesus. Uh, At least in recent times, I have to throw out the bucket list. Simply because of the, of the news that it made, you know, it it seemed like a, a surefire win. It seemed like a big comeback for Rob Reiner. And as I recall, um, we were in college when that movie came out, and the trailer was pretty good, and we heard good things. And you didn't really see how it could miss, and and it was supposed to come out in December, and then all of a sudden, hey, and we're like, well, when's it coming out? Was, oh, you know, February <laughs> or, or or March, and 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 we knew right then and there, oh no, right, what's wrong with it? And. Yeah, it's another one of those movies, kind of like uh, Justice League, like not the superhero aspect, but the critics weren't too kind of to bucket list, but the audience, like, there's a lot of people that really like that movie. Um, like me personally, I'm kind of in the middle of the road with it. I definitely don't think it's an Oscar contender, but yeah, it, it was. It is funny looking back on it and 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 the, and the legacy that that movie has actually left, which we've talked about before, where. Uh, there actually is a legacy for the movie. You know, the term bucket list, I don't even remember hearing before that movie came out. And people are still saying that. In fact, I've only about more people say that phrase than I've actually seen that movie. So there is something to be said for it. I'm going to throw out Pay It Forward. I'm going to try and go in order by year here. I'm going to do Pay It Forward from the year 2000. If you've seen the poster for this movie... Um, it, it screamed Oscar bait. In fact, this was the first time I remember hearing the word, the, the phrase Oscar bait even mentioned. You're talking about in the year 2000, you're talking about three people who have either been nominated and or won in uh, an Academy Award. Kevin Spacey, Helen Hunt, and then Haley Joel Osment. At a, which a story which when you look at its premise, you would think, yes, this thing is going to kill. And then you directed it? It's it. I don't have the it's it was a name I did not recognize. I will tell you that. I did not recognize okay. right off the top of my head. Because that was what I was looking for. Because the, there's a ton of people in this movie, like Jim Caviezel, Lee Schreiber, Jay Moore. There's a lot of and John Bon Jovi. <laughs> Why not? Oh, God. <laughs> there are there are a lot of named people that show up in this. And the thing that's interesting is a lot of the reviews were just people were so angry at just how this movie was so 
blatantly like kind of exploitive of oh damaged people you know have to get together to be able to heal each other they were not very impressed with the way it came across and i think even more ire was just kind of put towards um the ending is and i remember you talking about the ending specifically it's like man that ending really punches you in the gut and it really does not make you sit well with it at the end it's not a very good message for the movie to go out of no. Because the way that I I haven't seen it since the theater, but the way I interpret it was no good deed goes unpunished. And you know, and the whole movie is about, you know, helping each other and and basically making the world a better place. And then at the end of the movie it's like, and it's all a big waste of time. Yeah. It's all <laughs> that's the way that's the way it felt. And as like a thirteen year old kid, like seeing that in the theater, you know, especially with it being the kid from the sixth sense who I really liked, and it was it was really kinda like a punch in the gut, and I've never, I've never been able to go back and look at it. Yeah, I, I don't think many people. I really don't think many people do. This one, when you look at just like, I mean, the promise this movie had. I mean, seriously, Spacey's coming off American Beauty. Helen Hunt is still pretty fresh off as good as it gets in her Oscar win. And Haley Joel Osment, that I see dead people made his career, so he was hot coming off. Of and he was an Oscar nominee. Yes. This movie had it all right in front of it, and it just—I mean, it, you everyone was sold a real bill of goods on this. It was definitely, it definitely underperformed. What's your next one? Oh man, I gotta go with Funny People. There you go. What year was that? Oh yeah. nine or ten? I want to—I want to say it's oh seven. Oh man, that's knocked up. Is oh seven? I think that that came out when you oh, and I were calling. Okay, oh, oh, all right. In that case, yeah. Then, then it's probably oh nine. Um, this is like the classic Judd Apatow's movies are 20 minutes too long. This one's actually 30 minutes too long. <laughs> uh, this was a comedy drama that clocked in at two and a half hours. And this came out during a weird period of Adam Sandler where he was still doing his goofy man-child movies. But he was also kind of trying to branch out and, and see if he could act. Which, I mean, I'll be honest, Adam Sandler can act. I really think he can if he's in the right movie, whether it's Punch Drunk Love or or something like um, even Spanglish, he has a few moments. But Funny People, this was very interesting because it was like there's two personas of Adam Sandler, you know, the, the goofball man-child and the misunderstood indie darling. Yeah, he's got kind of both. And then there's Funny People where I feel like he tried to do both in the same movie and thought that that was the key to getting some attention. And the poster is just, it's just terrible. It's, it's, remember the poster? It's like Adam Sandler with like Seth Rogen's head on Sandler's shoulder and Leslie Mann. And they're just kind of like, yeah, we're doing this, aren't we? It felt like all three of them were being positioned for awards. It really felt like all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And the story itself, I mean, it's about a a comedian who is, he's basically, he's, he's seen better days and he learns that he has cancer. And then he takes a younger comedian under his wing and his ex-girlfriend from college gets back into the picture. And this is a spoiler alert, but it has to be said. We learn that he doesn't have cancer halfway through the movie. And he then spends the next half of the movie with this younger comedian at his old girlfriend's house who has remarried to Eric Bana and tries to steal her from him. This is an, an entire portion of the movie that isn't even in the trailer. It's it's not a bad movie. I, I actually there are parts of it that I really like, but it's definitely the I think the weakest of the Judd Apatow flicks. And it was the last time that uh, Apatow tried something like this. And Sandler, I think his I mean he still does his weird movies. I heard his new movie on Netflix is really good. The one with Ben Stiller where they play brothers. Yes. Um, and this is another one of those Adam Sandler might be better than people give him credit for. You know, type of movies. So, but I always go back to Funny People as like when he truly tried to get some kind of nomination and it just didn't work. Oh, absolutely. Apatow was really. I mean, he had built a cat. He had built up some cachet. He had done Forty Year Old Virgin. He had done Knocked Up, and so it was time to kind of do one for him. You know what I mean? Like one. Oh yeah. In a way that was just going to be completely him, and it definitely did not succeed to where I think they had intended for it. Um, my next one is Captain Corelli's Mandolin from 2001. 
Captain Corelli's Mandolin is directed by John Madden, not the football coach announcer, which that maybe that would have been a better movie. That's such an easy, stupid joke for any time John Madden has brought up the director. But no, John Madden was coming off of Shakespeare in Love, and that is right prominent on the poster. The poster is gorgeous for this movie. It's an unbelievably beautiful poster. But right at the very top, it's Academy Award-nominated John Madden, who uh, in many ways, I think people, in many ways, man, he was close to winning that. Because the way Miramax had positioned that market, he almost won that from Spielberg uh, for Shakespeare in Love, which would have been, you know, I, I wouldn't have been in favor of that by any means. But Captain Crowley's Mandolin, it's like, well, if Spielberg needed to win, if he won with a war movie, then I should do a war movie. Then maybe I'll win one. Well, the story of this is, it's it's not bad. It's 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 one of those World War II stories that is it's something we're not exposed to too much. And that stuff that has to do with like non-Americans. In World War II, and this especially with Italian soldiers having to go over to the Greek islands, the Greek Isles, I should say, and it's everything. Everything about it's set up pretty good. It's a, it's going to be this kind of Casablanca esque love story that's mixed in there. You have Penelope Cruz, who at this point, you know, is is still, you know. It, I guess pretty decent in the eyes of like of, of moviegoers, like in terms of oh that's credible. Then it, I mean, what he had done, what John Madden had done with Gwyneth Paltrow and getting her an Oscar, it didn't seem out of the realm that you know maybe the same could be done for Penelope Cruz. This is a strong female part for her, but where it really comes undone immediately. And the trailer did a pretty good job of masking this. I think it's been a while since I've seen it, but the lead is Nicolas Cage playing an Italian. Soldier. <laughs> and I mean, it's not like Nicholas Cage. Well, okay. I, I love this one review where it's like, yeah, he's about as Italian as SpaghettiOs. I think I saw. <laughs> That's and, pretty good. And, and the thing is, like, I get it. Yeah, he, you're right. He, he is of a Coppola, a Coppola um, descent, but in no way, shape, or form does his accent sound anything, like, realistic. He sounds like a, a skit. In the entire yeah. movie. And instantly, it just makes the movie just fall off a cliff. Like, it 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 ruins the movie in a lot of ways. The plot itself is, it's it's not that spectacular once you dive into it. Like, the love story itself, like, looking at Cage and, and, and uh, Penelope Cruz, like, it just doesn't seem like a good mix. Boy, was this thing, did this thing look like it was going to come out of the gates and be a contender and instead like it wasn't even close to being nominated I don't think it got nominated for anything I could be mistaken but I think it fell way way short and a lot of that just had to do with again it was the Nicolas Cage aspect of it and this was way before he became kind of the comedic punchline that he is now so yeah it, it was uh it was definitely a it was a sad result what uh, what's your next one your number three well um that would have to be Wyatt Earp if we're going to talk about what my next one would be. So Wyatt Earp came out in 1995 and Kevin Costner, much like Nicolas Cage, wasn't quite a punchline yet. I mean, he did, he had done the bodyguard and gotten a Razzie award nomination for worst new haircut, but you know, people hadn't completely soured on him. Honestly, until probably 1995 and between Wyatt Earp and Waterworld. Waterworld wasn't going to get this kind of attention, but it was from Lawrence Kasdan, who has, of, of course, gone on to, or he has done several, I mean, several movies that have gotten Oscar attention before. And he has actually worked with Kevin Costner before. And if you've seen the trailer, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It's the same subject matter as Tombstone, yet if you look at the two trailers, they are completely different in the way that they're presenting their story. And Wyatt Earp was, for the most part, pretty well torn apart by critics when it came out. Unfortunately, you know, because I, I went through that whole phase in college where I was like, I've got to see these Kevin Costner movies. And there's not a one of them that I don't like. <laughs> and Wyatt, yes, it's not Tombstone. And when you when you read the behind-the-scenes stuff about the kind of things that the, those productions were doing to each other at the same time, it makes it even funnier because they were going on at the same time. And Costner is very strange in the movie. So, like, because there's two versions of him. There's the, the light-hearted version of him, which is the first half of the movie, which is more so, like, a more tame version of his character from Silverado, which is also Lawrence Kasdan. He's, it's the same kind of goofiness. He's even got the same haircut. 
But then it gets to the second half after all the tragedy happens. And Faith Costner might have six lines of dialogue. And he's just like acting by staring. And I, I can't help but think that they wanted something for this movie. Because you got to remember that this was after Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves was still fresh in people's minds. And this was Kevin Costner's return to the Western. And Westerns were still kind of doing stuff at the time because Unforgiven, Tombstone. It's like Westerns kind of made a bit of a comeback in the 90s. And this movie didn't leave much of an impression at all. You know, it didn't help that it was another one of these over three-hour-long Kevin Costner movies. But, um, you know, I've, I've seen it. I think it's a good movie. But, yeah, is it one of my favorites? No, no. And the, the trailer is, is quite good <laughs> for the Oscar baitness alone. In particular, my favorite part, which is actually I've I've seen this ripped off many times after that shot of Costner looking up in the sky with fireworks going off. You know, I remember seeing the trailer for Brokeback Mountain, and they and and they copied that exact shot, and I was like, <laughs> I can't believe this, but they stole that from Wyatt Earp. <laughs> Thinking that out loud. And let's face but, it, coming off Unforgiven, you know, they had every right to think that they might be able to steal one. Again, but sure. it's just Wyatt Earp is way off of Unforgiven in terms of just everything, and I mean, oh, it's not even close. Yeah, yeah, not even. The only thing, it, well, it has length on it. I'll give it that. <laughs> yeah, well, Unforgiven's what, like two hours and fifteen minutes, something like that. Yeah, yeah, but you know, Wyatt Earp. I mean, there's even a director's cut, which I don't think I've seen. That's like two, uh, three hours and thirty minutes, or whatever it is, <laughs> but. I mean, I've watched it. I mean, I've seen the four-hour cut of Dances with Wolves. Yeah. I, 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 I would do one of these if, if I could get a copy of it, but I haven't had to yet. Here, here's one for me. Like, I was actually excited to see this movie in the theater, and I was, like, I was excited because I would get to screen it by myself. Nobody wanted to touch this thing. In hindsight, they were probably right. This is in 2003. The director is Robert Benton, and the movie is The Human Stain, which is a bait... <sighs> Based off a book by Philip Roth, it stars Anthony Hopkins, Nicole Kidman, and Ed Harris. You can already see the poster. Academy Award winner Robert, ben- uh, Robert Benton. Dude, it's a floating head poster. Oh, it's yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of. It's the two of them. It focuses on, the, on Hopkins and Kidman. But Kidman had just won her Oscar for um, uh, the, the – what's the – golly, I'm blanking on it. The, the movie with – the – dang it. Moulin Rouge? No, nope. The one where it's got her, it's Meryl Streep, it's Julianne Moore. Oh, the, the hours. The hours. That's right. It lasted for hours. That's why. That's the years. <laughs> um, and then you had Ed Harris, who is always good to put on a poster because he's Academy Award nominated. Easy. It's also got Gary Sinise in there too. So it's got, and it's actually got it's a also an Oscar nominee. It's also got uh, for probably one of his first big performances, Wentworth Miller, uh, years before uh, Prison Break. So the movie itself, like, you were like, God dang, that thing's got some power behind it. And Robert Benton kind of got stuck with a few of these Oscar baits. He directed a, a movie called Twilight years before the vampire movie. Wait, that Paul had, Newman? Yeah, Newman, Hackman, yeah, Garner, yeah. the works. Susan Sarandon, a, uh, a topless Reese Witherspoon. Um, it kind of had, <laughs> it had a lot of power behind it. But this, the human stain, like, the interesting thing is, like, it's about this... It takes place during... It, it fits very well taking place during the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal. But it's a college professor who is disgraced from his... The college he teaches at because apparently he uses a racial slur. He denies it, but nevertheless, he's, he's ostracized. And then, of course, his wife dies of a stroke. He then... And this is Anthony Hopkins. He takes up an affair with Nicole Kidman, who plays a semi-illiterate janitor... At the college, whose ex-husband is the crazy psycho, or ex-husband is a crazy psycho Ed Harris, who that means the party's born to play. But as it begins to unravel, like you just begin to, um, you begin to see, like there's this, there's, it all comes down to the twist in the movie, and the whole thing is like Hopkins is while he's taking on this new relationship and he's this older man. The thing is, like, it's flashing back and showing him as a young man, and this all ties into why he was he had lost his job. They had said he'd use a racial, or he'd use a, a racial slur, and the thing is, you find out like that really can't be true because, as the twist becomes, Anthony Hopkins, here it comes, is himself an African American. So, so what you find out is when he was younger in the Wentworth Miller part of the movie, 
he sees somebody like I think it's a family member or somebody he knows that is also in the same position he is that is of African American descent that once they are identified as African American like their life is a living hell and he wants to avoid that so he never acknowledges that he is of African American descent so the book I've heard is extremely compelling extremely compelling to go through but the movie itself of course like since it's condensed down to this two hour you know and some odd minute frame or whatever it's it it eliminates a lot of that kind of those little intricacies and details of it but the worst part about it really that you can't get past is Anthony Hopkins in no way shape or form even with his accent doesn't really try to it's never believable that he's in any way shape or form any type of African American even a little bit like it just it's it I mean I don't I don't exactly want him coming out being like Bullworth. Right. Exactly. But like <laughs> Or maybe it's, I do. It's it's just badly miscast. It's terribly miscast. And even worse than that is the fact that him and Wentworth Miller don't seem to be the same person at all. At all. Because Wentworth Miller doesn't talk like Anthony Hopkins. No, and hardly anyone does. I mean that's that's one of the problems I have with that Hannibal Rising movie. But that, that's that's at least, I'm sure in book form it would be different, but that sounds absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, like, when I read, like, a lot of stuff about the book, I was like, this really would be a compelling story about identity, about um, a, a something that hasn't gone out of style today, about political correctness, things of that nature. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things with this. It's just, unfortunately, like, the, the knock that a lot of critics gave it, rightfully so, is, the, is just the miscasting. The miscasting totally kills... It kills this movie. Otherwise, because you know who... Charlie, you're going to love this. You know who wrote the script? It's Nicholas, uh, no. it's Nicholas Meyer. No way. Yeah. And the script that doesn't really get knocked in this movie. It really is the choices in casting, right. which... I mean, the, the casting alone, like, they were shooting for big-time award consideration. And this movie fell... It fell way flat. And it is very much forgotten nowadays. Wow. What's your next? Another good poll. Oh, yeah. Well, this, this is kind of... I, I had to move this because you, I didn't know where you were going to put Captain Corelli, but this is the best example of what I'm about to bring up because this kind of falls into like an umbrella. Pretty much any war movie for the next 10 years after Saving Private Ryan was an Oscar bait movie. Just about every single one, they tried this, like whether it was like We Were Soldiers or Black Hawk Down... Stuff like that. But the one that I got to bring up is Pearl Harbor. Okay. Oh, yeah. Pearl Harbor, I mean, the movie, people look back on it, it's like, oh, Affleck was horrible in that. And Michael Bay directed it on it. Jeez. But, like, to actually go to the theater and see the teaser trailers for this with, like, children, like, jump roping on a mountain and then these planes with uh, the Japanese flag just flying over them. And they do this kind of Spielberg kind of stare off. I mean, it was just, it was really heavy handed and it was compelling. You know, oh man, we're going to get a movie about Pearl Harbor and it's going to be like the 60th anniversary. It was really cool. You know, from the director of Armageddon and The Rock. Yeah. <laughs> so it's okay. And it's going to have Ben Affleck, Kate Beckinsale, and Josh Hartman. All right. And Cuba Gooding Jr. is going to be in it. This could be interesting, I guess. And then, of course, the movie comes out, and it's just Titanic. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's a hundred percent Titanic, but yeah, just not nearly as good, really. Oh, it's, no, it's not even close to the movie that Titanic was. Titanic is, is a complete is a complete fluke. And Pearl Harbor thought, well, if we have the love story, we make it a love triangle, and we make them best friends, and if maybe if we. Uh, if we have a song, we have to have a song by a big female artist. Let's get Faith Hill. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you, I've always loved that Celine Dion song. I've always liked that song. It's a good song. This song, no, I do not like this at all. And this is also from that weird Jerry Bruckheimer, Michael Bay period. Even though Michael Bay didn't direct Con Air, they, they had a song in there that was, um, I think I think it was Faith Hill that did it, yeah. but but that was the theme song for that movie. You know, for the like it was like the love theme. But Pearl Harbor, 
first of all, I don't think it's nearly as bad as people make it out to be. Granted, I haven't seen it in years. But uh, I remember Cuba Gooding Jr., there, even after the movie came out and got, and got blasted by not just critics, but by fans, by, by war veterans, by people who love war movies, there were still people saying, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Cuba Gooding Jr. might be able to wade through this and get an Oscar nomination. Oh, yeah. And remember, Men of, Men, Men of Honor was Men like of the Honor. same, too. It's like the same type of thing. Yeah, and... Huh. Jeez, that just made me think of another Oscar bait movie that he did. But, um, you know, which is weird because Cuba already has his Oscar. And, you know, he's, and he's great in Jerry Maguire, but he is really good in Pearl Harbor. But the heavy-handedness of Ben Affleck and dealing with him, this was before I would even consider Ben Affleck good because I do think he's really good now. Yeah. But he just didn't have it back then. Never was a big fan of Josh Hartnett. Kate Beckinsale's wonderful, but she's just – anybody could have played that part. And uh, it does have interesting little performances peppered throughout it. Like I love Alec Baldwin in it. Right. I think it was one of his last really good big screen performances. And it's you know, and you've got the goofy friends that go along with it, which is a classic war movie trope. And you're like, oh man, it's just basically playing a who's who of who's gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> and the no matter what you say, the, the battle scene is incredible. Yes. Uh, even even by agree. CGI standards, uh, it looks so good. It's the, really the shot of the missile being dropped out of the plane and the camera following the missile all the way down. Uh, it's so cool. Yeah. I mean, not to say that, you know, it, I mean, as a tragedy, yes, it's horrible. But the artistic way, way that Michael Bay directed those action scenes are so good. But the movie itself, yeah, it did not work at all. And what was even more insulting was how the movie tried to pride itself on being historically accurate. Like, I remember them coming out with documentaries about, like, screening the movie for people who were in Pearl Harbor, you know, when it happened, and war veterans. And I'm like, what were you guys thinking? If yeah, they really were going to go all in, they should have waited till December to release it, because that would have been what's... Yeah, because it was a May, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was May. And it was a big summer movie, and, and this was Michael Bay trying to be more than just the action movie guy. Granted, the, I believe, four movies that he did before Pearl Harbor, I am huge fans of all of them. And then, but Pearl Harbor represented a change in his, in his filmmaking. And it wasn't long after that, that, you know, that he did The Island. And that was basically the final Michael Bay movie. And then Transformers until the end of time. Yeah. <laughs> but Pearl Harbor is an interesting footnote, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, this is only three years after Pearl Harbor. This next one, I I love whenever actors feel like then they want to direct a movie and then do everything associated with the movie, and then it becomes this thing called a passion project. And <laughs> here we go with this one. This it's one, a labor of love. it's a labor of love. This also fits into how biopics are all are, are oftentimes Oscar bait immediately upon arrival <laughs> into, into into poster form. This one is 2004's Kevin Spacey's Behind Be- Beyond the Sea. <laughs> Couldn't even get the title straight. Beyond the Sea, the the Bobby Darren biopic that he acted in, wrote, directed. Spacey movies. Yeah. Oh, K- Spacey in the early 2000s, especially even up to like even that Life of David Gale, which came out like a year or yeah. so later. My God. Um, but beyond the sea was, you know, when when you, when you saw this on paper, you're like, okay. And then you heard like, you know, he was going to sing all the Bobby Darren, uh, all the songs they had given him. Of course, here's the, here's another Oscar bait thing. If we can make you look like somebody else, then you're easily going to be sneaking into a nomination, right? No, not necessarily. That's his best makeup. Right. Exactly. You know, Beyond the Sea, it's it's it tried to it tried to go beyond your traditional biopic. It tried to get a little fantastical with the storytelling, like a little bit like uh, almost like dream sequences, things of that nature. I think there's moments where Bobby Darren sees a younger Bobby Darren. Like it's all these. It's it's definitely more of the surreal kind of take. And unfortunately, like the movie comes across as just a big gigantic mess. It is a mess of a biopic that has. Yeah, it's got good singing in it. Like, Spacey's an amazing performer. Like, he's a really good performer. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you can just, well, you can just phone it in and the movie will just kind of fix itself while you act in front of the camera. 
doesn't work that way. Like Clint Eastwood is a, one of those rare guys that can pull it off almost every time that he acted in a movie and then directed it. Came out pretty okay, more than okay in a lot of instances. But Beyond the Sea was just this. It was at all the Oscar bait tropes. It's I'm going to make myself look completely different. I'm going to do a biopic on top of it. And it's going to be an actor that's branching out and doing everything that has to do with the movie. It has all these things. And the movie just was a total train wreck. And it totally, I think it, it in, some, in some cases, sums up Spacey's career after American Beauty. In a lot of ways, like what he tried to do in terms of award caliber movies as he saw them. So that would be my number four. It's interesting to talk about Beyond the Sea because um, I saw that movie when it first came out, and, and you're right. Like, I, I, I did appreciate the fantastical part of it because I believe Spacey talks to the camera in the first five minutes of the movie, and he basically says, I know I'm 45 years old and playing a 20-year-old. Just deal with it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. And yeah, the singing is good, and... You know, he does Beyond the Sea, Mac the Knife, all those Bobby Darren songs, and it's, and it's fun. But, you know, then it gets to the movie part of it. And, yeah, I mean, I honestly don't really remember anything other than the singing uh, from the movie, which is a shame because Bobby Darren had an interesting story. Yeah. Um, I'd like, before I hit my last one, I'd like to throw out two honorable mentions. And uh, this will just be brief because, man, the Pearl Harbor talk jogged my memory. Radio. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Had all of it. Oh my god! I mean, just exploitive, pandering. I think you can watch Tropic Thunder and understand why it doesn't work. Yes. No. Oh yeah. And I have um, my my roommate is a huge fan of radio, and it's simply because of where it takes place. Yeah. I'm like, dude, this movie's terrible. Like, it's really bad. You know, because I, I watched it with him, gave him the benefit of the doubt. Oscar bait to the T. You know, and after that, I, I have to mention this because it's my favorite one. My favorite Oscar bait movie would have to be, um, and this is an honorable mention, but Billy Crystal's Mr. Saturday Night. Okay, yeah. This was this is an interesting uh, idea he had. He basically, the way I figured, he thought he'd hosted enough Oscars. Maybe he should win one. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, it didn't quite work out that way. Granted, the movie did get one Oscar nomination. It was for David Pamer. But, um, and the Golden Globes nominated both Crystal and Pamer, but the movie... Which I actually think is a great movie. It really is. It's kind of a biopic for a character that doesn't even exist, so that's weird. But um, it's not. It's really a, a decent flick. But Crystal obviously was trying to get something that he wasn't going to get. But that's a great little jumping off point for my number five because what Crystal tried to do one time, this next actor has tried to do almost his entire career, and that's basically to give it more of a more more context. The sad clown. Everyone's a sad clown. Every comedian has a soft side. And and all the comedy comes from pain. Robin Williams, if he has a beard, it's going to be one of those movies. But what I wanted to talk about was basically anything Jim Carrey has done. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I know. And, because, and, and the reason I, 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 I can't quite pick just one, because I, I just watched that documentary. Um, Jim and Andy mm. on Netflix. I watched that a couple days ago. Basically, it's the behind-the-scenes story of his second Oscar bait movie, uh, Man on the Moon. Uh, and yes, it's absolutely true. I mean, he comes off and as just a complete... I mean, we try to keep this PG, but he's not a very good person, is the way it comes across. And it's very manipulative. Uh, it's just for that movie. But I mean, if we're talking the movies alone, first he tried with Truman Show. Yeah. And... Granted, I think this was his best shot at getting something. And I do think it's a bit of a crime that Ed Harris gets an Oscar nod for it, but Jim Carrey doesn't. And Jim Carrey really brings something special to that movie. Then he does, he gets the Golden Globe for it, no Oscar nomination. So then he goes to Man on the Moon. He gets the Golden Globe for it, no Oscar nomination. And I also think maybe he shouldn't have won, but he definitely should have been nominated for that. But, I mean, the be-all, end-all is the third movie. Where, he, I mean, and this is really going to be the center point of, of this conversation. When he did the Majestic, and that that trailer came out, we found out what the movie was about. It's directed by Frank Darabont, who did the Shawshank Redemption. It's about a Hollywood screenwriter in the 1950s who gets blacklisted over possible communist ties. That's Oscar bait enough. 
But it gets better. He gets into a car accident on his way home, falls into a river off a bridge. I don't know how this happened. But he wakes up, and he's in this town, and the, and the town mistakes him for the long-lost World War II son. Of, uh, like, basically, they mistake him for a soldier who went to World War II and disappeared because he looks exactly like him. And the rest of the movie is, is him think he's this guy, and then, of course, he figures out, oh, I'm Trumbo. <laughs> right <laughs> and he goes in front of Congress just like in every Robin Williams movie where he's in a court of law and he has to basically plead his case to the judge at the very end of Patch Adams misses that fire I mean you know, Jim Carrey does the same thing and it's like uh, I mean this isn't a bad movie I mean it's got Martin Landau and, and he does his typical great best supporting actor performance uh, but it's a definite miss in terms of of where they wanted the movie to go, almost because it's too on the nose of what it's trying to be. After that, I mean, I started thinking about it more. I mean, it's not just Eternal Sunshine, man. I mean, do you remember I Love You, Philip Morris? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. was ten years too late on the "I'll get nominated because I'll be gay." Yeah. Train. Yeah. You know, like that's what that movie felt like. And then there's, I mean, the number twenty-three, which is just I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Carrey is just, he seems so desperate for, for acceptance and attention, especially if you watch that documentary, it's very clear that, that he definitely wants to be respected by his peers for his work. And I mean, and he should be, but there's so many people that just can't separate him from those first three years of movies that he did. Like people see that as his whole career, but, and it's really a shame because it changed his entire trajectory. Yeah. And even, even on the rare occasion where he does go back and do a goofy comedy, whether it was me, myself, and Irene, Yes Man, or even Dumb and Dumber 2, it something feels off every single time. You know, it's not that he's not funny anymore. It's just like there's something different about, about the way he acts in comedies. Even in Bruce Almighty, I see it, you know. So I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. No, no, it's a, I mean, I think there's some actors, and I think, I'm not, I'm not going to say, I'm, Will Smith is not my number five. You could easily do the same thing for Will Smith movies easily sure Will Smith after a certain point just stopped stopped trying to be just look at the poster yes seven pounds yes please just give it to me please just look at it yeah and then concussion I mean uh, (laughs) the trailer that we love to make fun of yes yeah (laughs) tell the truth (laughs) wait 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 (laughs) (laughs) my number five uh, it's another Hopkins movie. It's from 2012. It's Hitchcock. Oh, this will be fun. Hitchcock had, again, like, this is the biopic thing. Like, again, okay, we made him look like Alfred Hitchcock, so he must be Alfred Hitchcock, which means we need to give him an Oscar. The movie itself, it, I'm just, I think Hitchcock is essentially Rocky Three. It's the same story, almost, in a lot of ways. It is Hitchcock... I, it's Hitchcock coming to terms with what am I like? Do I fit in this anymore? What is what do I want? To, what can I do next? What motivates me? And then it becomes all right. It's psycho, but then everybody thinks it's not going to work. Nobody thinks he can do a, a great film anymore, or nobody thinks that psycho itself is going to work. And then he's struggling to get through it because he doesn't have the he's his relationship with his wife isn't as strong as it should be. Who is Helen Mirren, which is also like, okay, more strength for Oscar consideration. And then when does it, when does the movie finally start to come together? Once things are good with his wife. And then that's when it starts coming together as a movie. And then, of course, Psycho becomes what we all see. Like the scene where Hitchcock is at the screening of it is awesome. It's a great scene in the movie. But the movie itself is so, it, it's, it's a biopic that instead of telling the whole story of a man's life, we're going to do just a segment of it, and it's going to be when this movie was coming out. But by and large, it's very bland. It's, it doesn't really go too deep. It doesn't really, I feel like, get into the, a lot of the deep, interesting, maybe dark stuff of, of Alfred Hitchcock. It just seems like a very just bland, semi-biopic film here. And They made a big mistake because the original title for the movie... And it's too long, but the original title was Alfred Hitchcock in the Making of Psycho. You know, when, yeah. But just calling it Hitchcock, I mean, you're thinking you're getting a biopic. Yeah. And that would be interesting. Like a, a, a real movie just about his entire life, like Chaplin or something like that. So it's, 
I, 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 for whatever reason, I think I have it like in a two pack with Psycho. I actually ended up getting Hitchcock. It's all right. It's all right. It's got some pretty. It's okay. it's okay. If you enjoy like the filmmaking process, I guess like you know that's where it gets kind of alluring, especially from you know in previous years and previous decades when the studio system was much much different and stuff. So. Oscar bait, they're out there. You'll find them this year. I guarantee it. I guarantee there are movies you can consider Oscar bait that are coming out this year. If you have some, tweet us at Real Change Pod. Tweet us your Oscar bait, even if they're ones not coming out nowadays. Which films have you seen or haven't seen? And they were considered Oscar bait. So let us know. The, the final big thing we wanted to talk about, and this ties back into what happened with Justice League over the weekend. It underperformed, you know, uh, by... Uh, a fairly considerable margin. And The Mummy from May of or June of this year also vastly underperformed. And it seems to have derailed an entire universe. And we're talking about the Dark Universe, which was supposed to be Universal's answer to Justice League, the DC movies, and the Avengers, and the Marvel movies. They were gonna have a they were gonna have these team-up movies that were gonna come together and have one giant monster team-up movie thing. And now, unfortunately, because the mummy. <laughs> I'm sorry. They just, they just kind of phoned it in and just re released Van Helsing. And there, surprise, we are. Boy, is this a fascinating little timeline. Just the way they 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 since 2010, I wrote down a couple of these. The wolf, this, the Wolfman was not part of this, but it felt like it. it in many ways, if it had worked, but it, which Frankenstein movie was? Exactly, I Frankenstein. That that when you look at how these movies did, they I mean they did not do well. I Frankenstein was 2014. That was 71 million off a 65 million dollar budget. So that didn't wow people. Dracula Untold was supposed to be the start of this. It only made 56 million off a 70 million dollar budget. And then Victor Frankenstein. You know what? Maybe this will be it. No, I'm sorry. It is a 40. It made it. It technically profited domestically, but only by about eight million. It was not a hit, a, a super hit, with audience goers. And that brings us to the Mummy. The Mummy was 125 million on its budget domestically, 80. <laughs> I think. Uh, I think the legacy of the Dark Universe is simply just going to be that they single-handedly invented the phrase "soft reboot." Oh yeah, everything because it yeah. happened. Every single time. And you look at who's the... Alex, Kurtz, Alex Kurtzman's at the head of this, who carries a lot of clout. You know, especially nowadays with the stuff he has worked on. You know, he's very capable to be at the helm of this. He's gone. He's left this. And so now, The Bride of Frankenstein was going to be directed by Bill Condon, who did, you know, Dreamgirls. So it was going to have Javier Bardem yeah, and... Angel Twilight movie. Right, right. And... and okay. So you had Javier Bardem and Angelina Jolie for Bride of Frankenstein, with Bardem being the Frankenstein monster, obviously Jolie being the bride. That movie is now on hiatus, or not, maybe not even going to happen. And then oh, the, I thought they canceled the whole thing. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was playing it safe, but I think you're right. And then there's okay. The Invisible Man with Johnny Depp. All these movies... I would have liked to have seen that. Yes. All of this has now been seemingly derailed, and Russell Crowe somewhere is probably sad because his attempt to have like an ongoing kind of series for himself <laughs> is done. Oh man, this is such a this is this is again this idea of quick fixes. We we can inst like Marvel didn't do this in one movie. They took a while to build to an Avengers movie that was a slam dunk, but they took their time. These that mummy movie just looked terrible. From I, I mean, it, the thing you is, you can figure out what it was, right? Like you got to remember that like the first like minute of that trailer looks like Mission Impossible Five, and then everything else, it's like okay, so there's a, a chick and she's the mummy, and she's got weird eyes. Why is Tom Cruise looking into this? And it just and he, and he just looks like Tom Cruise. I mean, that's another thing. And you also have to remember the backlash that that movie got simply because. They didn't bring back Brendan Fraser. Right. Right. Which, I mean, Brendan Fraser, I mean, he's pretty much just not anything anymore, but people still associate him with the mummy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is insane, but, you know. <clears throat> it's, it's, this is fascinating. I, I loved, re I, I thought it was wild to read. They had, you know, they had purchased all this office space that they were going to use to kind of have like a, a team that was, uh, you know, uh, under one roof, going through and making this whole thing—it's all I, abandoned. I don't understand this. I don't understand what in the world they were thinking that made them think that this was going to work. I mean, 
when did these, other than like the 1930s and 40s, and maybe the Hammer films from the 50s, when have these movies ever done one? The, I mean, like, th- this isn't the horror that people want to see really anymore. No. And it will, it's, it's not a lot of people's horror anymore. It's like if, you know, like slasher movies, for whatever reason, live on television now. Yeah. Which is very strange. But, like, that's the audience for now. You slash a movie at, in the movie theater, very unlikely. You know, to see Dracula, sorry, but vampires are completely played out. Yeah. Twilight just killed that. Fright Night, they tried to do that. Really good movie. Bombed. Yeah. You know, people just don't care. And Frankenstein, you get the Invisible Man. It, on paper, it sounds like a great idea. It really does. It sounds like something that should work and should be a lot of fun. But even like even so, some of that casting, I love Javier Bardem, but he was going to be Frankenstein. It's a little odd. Could have been worse than De Niro as the Frankenstein monster. Could have been no. (laughs) The answer is no. Uh, It's a hard no for me. (laughs) But uh, like uh, like that's the one thing the Marvel movies have done incredibly well is that their casting is on point. Yeah. Like their their cast. That's the one thing I absolutely cannot complain about when it comes to Marvel. They know how to cast for those characters, and and to a point where you can't imagine anyone else playing that character. You know, Justice League's even having a hard time pulling this off, but Marvel knows what they're doing. So, and, and they figured, and this was kind of funny that the Dark Universe thought that, well, if we have a bunch of big name actors, that'll take care of half of it. People will come to see. Kids love Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe and Johnny Depp. Yeah, maybe fifteen years ago. Uh, the Marvel movies, for the most part, like Robert Downey Jr., that was the, the oddest casting choice that they did. And it turned out to, to be the best thing that they could have done. Yeah. And pretty much every casting choice that they've done since then with their mainstream uh, superheroes have been, at the time, relatively unknowns. They let the characters yeah, be the big draw for the audience. Yeah, I. my last thought on this is, I, I hate, I don't, it's not like I root for things not to succeed because that's what what kind of life oh, do you want to live doing that? You don't want. <laughs> but at the same time, like I'm kind of glad these between what DC has encountered and what these guys are encountering with the Dark Universe, I'm kind of glad to see them fall on their face because then because now we're not going to be getting all these crossover team up movies and everything. And this will be the uh, this will be what a summer blockbuster is now. Yeah, and that's my big concern. Like this is just this is it. This is the, for the end of time. I'm just gonna have to watch people in capes, and flying around the world, and fighting goofy looking aliens. No, no, it, it, digging up graves. It just it sounded it sounded like an utter hell. Yeah. And Justice League, we talked about this. The only reason, the only real reason why that thing is still going, they haven't canceled it yet, is simply because there are people that will go and see a large amount of people that will go and see those movies, no matter what. Right. Because it's Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. And those are incredibly popular characters. It doesn't matter what the movie is. People will go see it. Even Batman and Robin grossed over $100 million. So that is... The, so, I mean, I, you're right, man. No, I mean, you're right. There are people that are going to go see it no matter what. Monster movies, not the same thing. They will not it's go not no matter what. It's not the same thing. It's not the same world that, 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 that we live in. And that'd be cool. And granted, I, I do give Universal credit. They, they practically invented this whole thing back in the 30s. Yeah. Like, the, like this was their thing. The, this was the house that that uh, the Universal was built on. Was the Universal Monster Movies? Like it was a huge deal. It's still a big deal when you go to the Universal theme parks. Yeah, you know, you still expect to see that stuff. But the, this, the times have changed. And I, and where I will back up my argument for Superman and how he is still relevant, I honestly don't think I can make a compelling argument for why the monsters from the Universal days are still relevant. So, Charlie, we've come to that point in the show where I'm going to leave you kind of with the last word before we close up shop. Okay. So, I'm going to turn you Fun. loose. Go for it. Well, uh, before we start every episode, Will likes to ask me if I'd like to rant on something. And uh, I have to think about it for a second. You know, like something that's going on that week. And and uh, I had a hard time at this, you know, for about a minute. And I thought, oh, wait, a minute, there is something that I, that I would like to talk about. And... It's not that I like talking about this subject. I don't. I like our shows to be fun and, and informative and just just a joy to listen to. But it's it's really hard not to talk about the stuff that's going on in Hollywood right now with these accusations with Weinstein and Spacey. And the, re- the, the, the reason I can bring this up and feel like I can do my rant or have a good time with it is because 
and this is an old conversation that I've had with people that goes way before these types of uh, accusations started coming up, is at what point is it not comfortable or right or okay to watch an actor that you dis or that you have a, a problem with in their personal life, their movie, basically. Like Mel Gibson, like that was the thing for the longest time in 2006. I'm never watching a Mel Gibson movie again. Or, or Woody Allen's Dead to Me. Or now it's uh, like, are you really going to shut off the entire Harvey Weinstein production company, like with Miramax? Like, do you have any idea how many names or how many movies that his name is on? And it was in regards really to Kevin Spacey. Like, like how can you go and see a movie with Kevin Spacey now? Uh, how, how can you fathom that? And I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting things that people would like to know about a lot of actors before the, the 70s and the 80s that they would be appalled by, but they just don't care. You know, like remember when we talked about how much we used to love Jimmy Stewart and still do, then we found out he was a, a red hunter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember that? I have not, I've truly not been able to look back on him the same way since. Uh, not because I love communists or anything, but that was a really dark time for Hollywood, as the Majestic showed us in such wonderful fashion. But, you know, the, the, the idea of not watching one of these guys' movies again, like Woody Allen, yeah, he is more, more likely than not, he's a scumbag. But you know what? He directed Annie Hall. He directed Manhattan. You know, he has a lot of great movies under his belt. And, and then there's celebrities that everyone seems to give a pass to. Peter Sellers was a prick. He was an absolute prick. But Pink Panther, Dr. Strangelove, I'm going to continue watching those. And you know what, Kevin Spacey? No, he did American Beauty. Are people really not going to watch that movie anymore? Are people just, 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 I mean, I can understand if it was like, I'm not going to watch anything that he makes from now on. Like, I'm not going to give money to a movie theater. Or, or anything like that. That's if he ever makes another movie. I mean, who knows? He might actually go to prison over this. But to ignore an entire body of work, like Time to Kill, Usual Suspects. I mean, he had tons of good movies. And this goes for everybody. And this becomes the whole point of, what, can you separate the artist from the art? Like, I mentioned Mel Gibson, another one that was around at the time. The same time almost was Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has somehow been able to survive all this, despite with The Mummy which leads you to believe with box office. Mel Gibson is just starting to survive this. And what Mel Gibson did, I'm sorry, me personally, and this is my opinion, is it wasn't that bad. It really wasn't that bad. The guy was drunk out of his mind. And everyone says stupid crap when they're drunk. Yeah, is he racist? Maybe. I don't know. But I know, I know he knows how to make a damn good movie. And the same goes for Tom Cruise. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I honestly can't think of a guy who works harder in movies than Tom Cruise. Being in his 50s, still making action movies, still doing his own stunts, and his love interests have been the same age for the last 25 years. I mean, that's kind of cool. But, I mean, it's... I, I get it to an extent, but then I, I don't. like. Remember the kid from Bronx Tale? Oh, yeah. Killed somebody. Killed somebody. Killed somebody. He's, he's been in prison ever since. Am I never going to watch Bronx Tale again? No. This is stupid. This is a way for, I think, people to make themselves feel important. Like, like they're doing something. Like this is their one, the one thing that they can do for the public. I'm just never going to watch their movies again. Right. Like, really? Like, like this is your move. I mean, you can donate to a charity or something. But uh, like th this is how you're going to do it. You, it's, it's the same. I feel the same way about the people that are breaking their curves. <laughs> I feel the exact same way. I'm just like, you're not doing anything. Like you're not, you're not helping. You're not hurting. It's, it's insanity to me. And, and yeah, it's, Murder. I mean, my God. I mean, it doesn't really get any worse than that. Although, I mean, I guess an argument could be made for sexual assault. Like, Louis C.K. is a great example. Louis C.K. is a great example because I, I'll tell you, Will, I honestly believe this. He's the one guy who's going to get away with this. He's the one guy that people are going to forgive. Why? Because he was the first person who came out and admitted that he was wrong. No one had done that yet. And two, he will make a stand-up special, and the whole thing will be about this. And it will be absolutely hilarious. And that's going to be enough for people to go, ah, yeah, I think he's all right. You know, I mean, no, he's, he's really not all right. But I still will watch his stuff because I enjoy his art. I enjoy his work. And that's basically where I'm coming from on this. Like, like you talk about being 
you know, liberal in your leanings. I'm somewhat liberal in my leanings too, but there are tons of conservative actors, filmmakers that I like, yeah. you know, it's like people are just, I love people taking a dump on James Woods. I mean, he's, he's kind of roped into this whole thing too. And he's basically said he's retired. James Woods is an amazing actor, very underrated. So is John Boyer and very conservative. The Zuckers, David Zucker, uh, Leslie Nielsen was conservative. He's one of my favorite actors of all time. And, and and this comes this comes from like my upbringing with my family. They wrote off actors like George Clooney and stuff like that because they were liberal. It's like, are you out of your mind? Like, like this whole argument like really comes from like a, a deep place with me. Like it, it really does bother me because I'm just like Mel Gibson, really conservative, really religious. I'm neither I'm really neither of those things, but I love the guy. I absolutely love the guy. Kurt Russell's a libertarian. I think that's a little nuts, but he's my favorite. I can't help it. He's an he's an awesome actor, and he seems like a cool dude. So that's I just people think they're too important, and they're not, and that's that's the whole thing. You know, what what I will say just to to sum it up on my end, if I took into account every personal thing that an actor or an entertainer did, which was something I didn't agree with, whether it was benign, fairly benign, or incredibly malicious, I don't think I could watch anything ever again. You can never watch anything. Because you know, no I, one is hundred percent good or bad. Yeah. You know, I mean and and that's the problem. Yeah. So um guys, if you have comments on it, you know where to tweet us at Real Change Pod. The next screeners and dailies will now come it will probably come out after the Thanksgiving holiday, because uh during the Thanksgiving holiday you'll be able to download our next episode for the Real Change Podcast, which is Episode two of When Did That Come Out, which will be us in February of 86 looking at FX. <laughs> that is a fun episode because neither of us had seen that movie and it was fun to go through and look at uh, a Brian Brown movie that he is the star of. So that'll be coming out. Very so fun. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> then the, um, so the next screeners and dailies will probably be looking at, it'll be kind of summing up what happened over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, what succeeded, what didn't, what stories are going on. And then it's us getting ready for the December onslaught, which is going to be very much about star Wars. It's just star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we'll see how that turns out. Dude, I, uh, I, I should have mentioned this off, off Eric is, uh, this is, I feel like I'm, I'm plugging something, but the, uh, They've got the soundtrack up for pre-order on uh, iTunes, and ah, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to hear this. I'm very excited. Yeah. So that is Screeners and Dailies this week. You Again, the Twitter for us is at RealChangePod. I myself, I am at WilliamRinkin83. And I am at CM underscore Stabs. We'll see you guys again in one week for When Did That Come Out? When we take a look at February of 1986's FX.